we need the northern powerhouse too. Not one city, but a collection of northern cities sufficiently close to each other that combined they can take on the world. So how do we build the northern powerhouse? Well, by joining our northern cities together, not physically or in some artificial political construct, but providing the modern transport connections they need by backing their science and universities, by backing their creative clusters and giving them the local power and control that a powerhouse economy needs. That's George Osborne talking in 2014 when he was Chancellor about the creation of a northern powerhouse. Let's just say that in the years since then, there's been limited progress on that goal, as there has been on levelling up the UK economy. But there are promising signs. Look at the continuing growth of Manchester and the flourishing tech scene there. And look at the creation of Northern Gritstone. I'm Graham Ruddick and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Duncan Johnson, Chief Executive of Northern Gritstone, which wants to help build new world-leading businesses in Northern England and make the area a globally renowned technology hub. So Northern Gritstone is a new investment company that was founded by the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Sheffield to solve for a problem which was insufficient capital was making its way to the north of England to invest in science and innovation based businesses. The company is an independent company, it's owned by its shareholders and the management team and our founding universities have a small uh, stake in the business and we have a 15 year agreement with those universities to have a right of first refusal to invest in their spin-outs. The universities are quite incredible in the amount and quality of science they produce. They have 12,000 researchers between them, to give you a feel for the scale. 37 Nobel Prizes, 650 million of research revenue a year. So we're talking big organisations. 93% of the science is world class. And we have this amazingly rich and diverse pipeline coming from those universities. On top of that, we invest in other science and innovation based businesses in the north of England, really trying to create the world-class businesses of tomorrow from the world-class science innovation that exists currently. There's obviously plenty of venture capital money in in the UK and and there's other investors who've been targeting universities. Why wasn't it finding its way to these businesses and to these universities and, and to the north of England? Well, you are asking a really inbuilt UK north south question in that. If we look at the Bohurst numbers from 2019, Bohurst being the organisation that reports on this, only 1.8% of the of, of capital from, from the market went to the north of England as a whole for science innovation investing. That was £22 million. £900 million went to Oxford, Cambridge and London. So why did that happen? Well, a lot of people don't travel to the north of England. The north of England, I don't think, uh, has necessarily shouted enough about what, what it's so brilliant at. And I think these things compound over time. There has been a polarity that means things come to London, to the south. You know, London being a global city, not just a national city. And I think what we are seeing, and we are definitely seeing that in the investments 
and the businesses we are working with, and I'm, I'm an example of it as well, of that polarity starting to change. Capital, not just money, but human capital, starting to look to, 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 to work and live in the north of England within the tech ecosystem that is there. I think the fact that London is a remarkably expensive place to live is a driver in that as well. The pandemic is a driver in that as well, that people... Uh, valuing quality of life a little bit more, looking at where they live and wanting a broader experience out of everything. These have been helpful things in just nudging that polarity to allow us to to make this work. You've obviously gone out and raised money to to fund this, which is now well over £200 million, Mm -hmm. I think. When you've been telling this story to investors, have they got it quickly? Have they realised that they're missing an opportunity here? I think that's a really good question and i think when you when you go and see investors however compelling you believe your offer is it is one of almost an infinite number of investment opportunities those people are being presented with even in the venture space you can slice and dice it into a a multitude of different things that matches people's risk appetite duration return requirements history all those things. So what I've really found is where it resonates, it resonates incredibly strongly. People really get it. We talk a lot, as you know, about profit with purpose. People understand the profit potential here is absolutely top quartile potential from an underexploited world-class seam of science. People understand that the purpose it has in terms of creating jobs, creating aspiration and ambition in economies which need it, and ultimately the benefit it has to UK PLC. People really get it. Now, I'd like more people to get it, but it doesn't necessarily match their allocation strategies. We have absolutely seen a softness in the fundraising market really post-Q2 last year. I, I think perhaps a bit naively had thought quarter one this year, we'd start again in a really strong fundraising environment. We haven't seen that. Q1 is soft still. And um, that's driven by a risk-off appetite. It's driven by the fact that, that people had poor years last year in tech investing as a whole. And perversely, the public markets are looking like they're much better value at the moment. So fundraising is always hard work, even when it looks easy. Uh, we're building up to our final close now at the end of this quarter. We have some fantastic new investors who are going to join us on the journey who who clearly do get it but um, I'd like more of that mix to be UK institutional we still get the local support we now have overseas support but I think that the UK pension fund market which really should be supporting us who really should get it they have the capital profile that, that this should this should really sit well within I still I still feel we're waiting for somebody to pick up Sir Nigel Wilson's banner and say this is what we should all be doing and and driving it forward i'd like to see a bit more of that can you talk a little bit about those investments that you've made so far we 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 have such a smorgasbord to choose from i think we've seen as a business now 300 opportunities since may so an enormous set of science and innovation based businesses in the north of england that's what that's what's sort of in our in our hopper the first investment we made was in a an artificial, the, the guys there were described as a natural intelligence business, which was a spin-out from Sheffield University, a business called Opteran. And what Opteran has done is, is map the neural pathways of insects to allow 
for uh, powering autonomous vehicles. And uh, whilst whilst we'll all chuckle that bees are very good at flying into glass, which they struggle with, they're actually remarkably good at going from A to C, where C is the flowers and A is the hive, and then coming back and telling other insects about it. And they have a million neural pathways. And the guys at Sheffield were capable of mapping that, putting it onto a chip, and putting that into a very low power requirement uh, engine that sits on top of drones. And the most scary thing is you go to their office and they have one of those Boston scientific dogs with this as a brain on it that uh, is properly scary as it sort of runs around the office, but it works. And if we can carry on proving out the technology and the use cases of it, it is a totally game-changing way of looking at uh, autonomous vehicles and how they work and how they power and, and do things. Properly exciting. Sheffield being uh, the drone centre of Europe. I didn't know that before I started doing this, but you learn all these things as you go along the path. So that's that was the, the first investment we made. The most recent investment we've made is in a digital twinning business uh, that's spun out from uh, Leeds called Slingshot Simulations, where they're They've created digital twins of urban environments. You use it for urban planning, uh, allowing you for uh, really quite a strong uh, ESG message around the business in terms of traffic flows, in terms of done some work uh, for in the Amazon rainforest for deforestation modeling, that sort of thing. So very exciting digital twinning, allowing super fast, super accurate simulations. Uh, we've done a number of biotech businesses. We backed a, a business called QV Bioelectronics just before Christmas, which was uh, uh, with a product that had been developed within Manchester University, uh, which is a gel that sits in a cavity in the brain. Uh, this is to deal with very aggressive uh, form of brain cancer, putting electronic charges through a gel within the brain. Currently, if you get this type of cancer, you have a 3% survival rate. We know this technology increases that by 10 to 20 times improvement in life expectancy, properly game-changing stuff. And, and that's what actually you find really exciting about this job. We've got deep tech that fundamentally changes things. And then you're on the life sciences side, we can back businesses that can really improve the life journey for people. There are challenges and criticisms that come with investing in university spin-outs. This includes whether the academics involved get a fair share of the company whether the whole process takes too long and whether the commercialisation of university work is appropriate at all. So I think I was, I was asked at a, a dinner the other day what are, what are my learnings from the last two years of, of, of my journey here. And I would say three, three, three things are important if you're an academic looking to do this, which sort of encapsulate challenges both individually and institutionally. So uh, I think first off, you need to have perseverance. This is not a frictionless transaction. You are working with organizations that are set up for academic research. They are wanting, and there's an open desire to have commercialization more front and center, but they're on a journey. Their culture is not that at the moment. you know. And we, we see little changes all the time that it's evolving that way, but you need to persevere as a as a as an academic wanting to do this so that that's the first quality they need to have and that's because it's difficult i think the next thing is for the for academics you, you need to know what you don't know as an academic to to do that you need to have people to help you know what you don't know so that's putting more education support infusing people to do it we need to help tell people this is what the journey is going to be like 
these are the bits that you need to have alongside you to do that. So more education of the processes is needed. So you, you, you've got to know what you don't know and be willing to bring on board help where you don't know it. And the last thing is that it's a very dynamic environment that the academics are moving into. So they've got to have an acceptance and an understanding and a willingness to embrace that dynamism because building businesses is difficult. It changes a lot and the type of people you need around you to lead and drive changes that business grows through its phases. So I think that encapsulates lots of the challenges. We often talk about equity stakes. So this comes around on a regular basis as something that, that gets a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of airing. We are very lucky with uh, the conversations we have with our three founding universities on that. I think we're in a sensible place. It's more than about the percentage, uh, which a lot of people focus on. So you know, people complain that it should be 5% retained by the universities, you know, that people are still retaining 50%. We're not seeing that at all. We're seeing a much more sensible balance that with the founding universities. But it's, it's more nuanced on that. It depends on the IP deal you're doing with the university. Well, in deep tech spin-outs, you might well find there has been 10 to 15 years of, of IP created within the university environment uh, that is associated with that. This is how that is licensed, how you pay for that, whether there are royalties. That really does make a very big difference to what the equity percentage should be at the start of the journey. What I absolutely know within, within our university partners is a total acceptance that it's not just about owning a large slice of a cake. It is important that you are trying to bake as big a cake as you can and being pragmatic and sensible and looking for what is important, not just today, but in the Series A and the Series B and the Series C rounds and trying to make pragmatic decisions around that. So I know that probably is running against some of the some of the recent press on that. And it's good that we've had the, the debate and discussion on this because it means it's becoming more important. It's becoming more of a national conversation. But I, I think it's more nuanced and more balanced as ever than, than some of the headlines sometimes uh, lead you to believe. How important is it that the UK is doing this? Oh, I think it's fundamental. I think if, uh, if I look at our, our industrial strategy, I'm, I'm not convinced we've had much of an industrial strategy for a period of time, but this is as good as as good a one as we're going to find, I think. We are truly good at this. We have 19 of the top 100 universities in the world are located in the UK. The quality of science output is amazing. We are very good at this. We are very good at creating the science. We are less good and less mature than other economies at turning them into world-class businesses. And I think a focus and voices around us wanting to do that is vital. I think this is what is going to power... UK PLC 10, 20, 30 years down the line. That's what we are doing. Duncan Johnson started his career training to be a chartered accountant with the insolvency arm of PwC. He then went into investments with Royal Bank Development Capital and then Caledonia Private Capital. The chairman of Northern Gritstone is Lord Jim O'Neill. Lord O'Neill is from Manchester and was previously the chief economist at Goldman Sachs as well as a government minister under David Cameron and George Osborne. When I've described this to friends, I describe the business as a, uh, and in part my role because I'm leading the business, as a combination of watching Discovery Channel 24-7, 
and Dragon's Den on the screen next door to it. And that's, you know, and you think, wow, that's... So you're learning about stuff all the time and you have the dynamism of backing entrepreneurs and, and being involved in those journeys. And it has absolutely not disappointed on either of those two fronts. I think the fundraising market has materially changed since we started uh, Northern Gritstone from being not quite a FOMO fear of missing out market, but certain of those dynamics in it to being a totally risk off market. We couldn't be further away from FOMO today. So that that bit has changed. I think closing when we did, giving us the ammunition to develop the business, start investing, start building the team quicker has, re- has really helped that. Overall, I think this has really delivered for me. I was really looking for a role where it had more purpose that that I was using my skill set to do something that would make a difference. I thought about quite a few things. I'd even thought about potentially sort of politics. My wife very sensibly told me I'd be hopeless at that, and she's obviously correct. And I felt this was an opportunity to use my skill sets to have purpose, to create a business that really had a fundamental impact and something I could be proud of and my children proud of. And I definitely think this has delivered. I think I've been, I hadn't quite realised how much focus and interest there would be in what we were doing from all sorts of parties, even with you, Graham. You know, we've had so much interest from commentators and from uh, and from journalists, and then from the politicians and all that sort of thing. And what that has created, I feel, is a is a greater expectation. And I feel that. I feel there is a greater expectation of what we need to deliver. I'm not scared by that or I feel it a burden, but I know it's there. And that's one of the things that keeps me driving on. Just just on Lloyd O'Neill, he's obviously the chairman. Does How much involvement does he have day to day? I can't believe Jim does what he does. He, he, he is an absolute 24-7 worker. We chat uh, in the chat sense of my children, which is on texting and WhatsApping or actually physically chatting and meeting every day. So Jim is Jim has become uh, more and more passionate about what we're doing. He's so supportive of this being the thing that unlocks the things he was trying to do when he was a minister and came up with the Northern Powerhouse with George Osborne. I have, I have to say, working with Jim is, is, is truly a delight, and I'm not saying that because he's my chairman. It, it really is. He is, a, he is a great person to have as a colleague. And we're very lucky to have Jim as a figurehead for the for the business. Jim um, has had an inordinate number of approaches to go into business post Goldman Sachs uh, chairing, and this is the only thing he has done. And I think that says a lot about what he thinks about Northern Gritstone. That this is the this is the one thing he is putting his shoulder to the wheel to, because I think it resonates incredibly strongly with lots of the things. Jim cares about and actually the first conversation I had with Jim uh, we got on very well and we had a total meeting of minds of what we wanted out of Northern Gritstone what we wanted to create and that that's been really helpful for the for the for the journey you grew up in the southeast is that right that's right so do you did you before this did you have a personal attachment to, to the north of England uh, my wife is from North Wales so not quite the north of England but uh, from from the north but I've I've been a UK private markets investor for 25 years, and I've been travelling around the UK investing for, for that period of time. But no, I've not lived there. I don't have any great deep ties. 
I think me doing this is actually what we want more people to do. We want to change that polarity. We want to say there are great opportunities in the north of England. And I actually think the combination of me quite clearly being a soft southerner and and Jim quite clearly being the opposite <laughs> is a great combination. And um, I, th- I think it's I think it's a good thing. You've, you've got a front row seat in terms of how levelling up is going. You're travelling a lot. You're travelling between Manchester, Leeds and Sheffield. So you know what the transport situation is like up there. Could you just, from your perspective, give a sense of how much work there is to do in terms of boosting that part of the country and levelling up the economy? I think one of the mistakes that we've made is not harnessing HS3 and and the connectivity that's required. I think that was a fundamental mistake. I think if you don't have the infrastructure, whether it's digital or or hard infrastructure, it makes things vastly harder to do. And you're right. I mean, I travel Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Triangle on a weekly basis. And the number of trains that are cancelled makes that very difficult, incredibly time-wasting. You can't make proper commitments. And whilst... You know, the world has changed to the degree that you can use video conferencing to do things. It's not the same as meeting people. You must meet people face to face. You've got to show that interest. You've got to get that feedback. It's really important, the personal connectivity. And it's making doing what we're doing vastly harder. So you've got the issue with Transpennine that I think you everybody will write about, the cancellation rates, which are quite ridiculous. And then actually the infrastructure itself can't support a modern interconnected set of cities that we really do need to, to to make the north really sing and to really make the tech ecosystem that we're trying to help create the, the Silicon Valley of the north work. We need that hard infrastructure as well. So that has been very frustrating. I definitely have had a few moments of sitting on the platform at Leeds Station with my head in my hands wondering how am I going to get back somewhere? Were you shocked? Because obviously until you took this job, that it wasn't a regular journey that you would have been making, yeah. I guess. Were you shocked as to how bad it was? Having worked in uh, with my base in London for 30 years and the public transport that exists in London for all the moaning we might do about it, it's quite amazing. Not just getting into London, but then around London. And then you compare that to uh, an urban grouping that is of similar scale, to London and how poor it is in comparison. Yes, that's quite uh, that's quite frustrating and quite disappointing. I mean, the tram system in Manchester is good and da 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 da, but it's nothing like the, the the London benefits from. Can I ask about your own career? You started off, I think, as an accountant in insolvency. Is that right? Yeah. Did you always want to be an investment? When I uh, when I when I graduated, actually, I want I had wanted to stay on at university. I'd been offered a, a PhD and. Um, my father said, son, you need to go and get a job. So that, that, that sort of kibosh. What did you study at university? I was a, I was a studied geography, uh, but my sort of special bag of tricks was spatial epidemiology, which actually all, all came to the fore a couple of years ago with the pandemic. That's what I had studied. So I became an insolvency accountant. Uh, I was running small businesses for cash. Uh, and I would still say probably the most enjoyable job that I've ever had. It was for my stage in life, uh, being given the responsibility as a 22-year-old to go off mainly to the east end of London, running building merchants for cash, uh, was a really fascinating job. And during during uh, that time at 
Court Gully, uh, I, I'd made the decision I wanted to be an investor. And I eventually ended up working in Royal Bank of Scotland's uh, venture business, Royal Bank Development Capital, in the mid-90s. And that was really the start of my investment journey. Northern Gritstone is effectively the third investment businesses I've been part of creating. That was one of the reasons why I was I was very keen to do the role. I felt I'd done 80% of what is required here in building this business before, and 20% was was brand new and fascinating. And that, for me, felt a good ratio, 80-20. 80 I can do, 20 is new. That's enough that will keep me interested because it's new, but not so much that it's going to sort of swamp me with things you need to you need to do and unfortunately uh, the founding universities thought the same so they ended up recruiting me for that how much of an improvement have you made as an investor since you started off what do you wish you you what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started off so it's interesting you ask that because I, I i wrote a note for uh, for the business a couple of years ago about what i thought was a made a good business and what we should look for in investments, which was really 25 years of doing this synthesized into a 10-page note. And of course, 25 years ago, I really didn't have a clue. And I remember asking somebody in, in at Coopers and Library saying, what, what makes a good business? And I got a very accountancy auditing-based thing. So you know, always interesting what good looks like. My first investment I made at Royal Bank ended up being BVCA deal of the year. So First deal lead I ever ever did. I sort of hit the ball out of the park, which was probably the worst thing that could possibly ever, <laughs> ever, ever happened. It sort of made me feel that I sort of knew what good was. And it was only over the next 20 years that I really learned that wisdom comes from knowing what you don't know and finding people who do know about it. And I sort of suppose I went, I've been on a journey of being the brash young workaholic in, in this space to being somebody who gets more enjoyment and I give more value by coaching people than being being the player. And it's been a player to play a coach to, to coach transition and trying to help people not make the mistakes that I made. But I think the honest reality of, of investing is you need to make mistakes to be, to be good. Uh, but the UK is not a particularly forgiving environment for that. But it's through the mistakes you make that, that you really learn and you really learn what you... What, what, what you got right and what you got wrong, which made it unhelpful that my first deal was so was so successful. What was uh, it? Oh, it was a financing uh, a financing business uh, that uh, we we, uh, we we didn't pay very much for and sold it for a very large amount of money to GE after after about two years. But we we managed to invest in a sector that was growing very quickly and back the number two in the sector that became the number one uh, within about six months of the in the investment and. Uh, Yes, if I had businesses uh, like that in the portfolio every day that beat their budget every month and pleasantly surprise, that uh, that's, that would be a very nice portfolio to have. But it's, it's not often like that, Grant. How would you summarise that those 10 pages then? What does a good business look like? I think it ha- a bit those businesses have their dynamic. So I think a lot of the focus in the, in the note came about something that's fit for purpose today doesn't mean it's fit for purpose for tomorrow. So you have to have the processes and the people who who understand that and are willing to evolve and change that was a that was a key thing that under you know we talked in that paper things like kodak businesses that looked totally and utterly impregnable but the day digital took over kodak went from being hero to zero yet 
you'd have said it was a fully moated business if you use the Buffett environment. So it's that thing about making sure you're always looking forward and you're understanding what's coming next. It was then about, uh, I'm a real believer that revenue, selling, how you sell, how you structure sales are key to every business. If you don't have money coming in at the top of the house, you're going nowhere. It is so key. And I think it's one of the things we bring into what we look at in Northern Gritstone, that whole business development piece much earlier in the journey than I think historically would have been done within the spin-out environment. That that need to create a product, how you're going to sell it, who you're going to sell it to, how you're going to price it. So I think that's really key. And the other thing that I was very focused on and still am is around marginal pound reinvestment in businesses. This is really quite boring, but it's about how when you have a, a pound, how do you use it within the business? How are you making that decision? What are the feedback loops that you're looking for? And how are you ensuring that your business can carry on performing and growing at the rates you need it to? And one of the things we really look for are that ability to have projects within the business that can generate returns over three, five, ten year periods. And you want a nice mix of those within the business to allow you to do that. And if you really stand back from Northern Gritstone, that is what we're creating at Northern Gritstone, is a business that our shareholders can, can enjoy a return over that type of period with a portfolio construction that supports them. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to Off to Lunch, our sister publication on Substack. There you'll get bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week through our newsletter. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.